Welcome back to the Zachariah Show. New year, new episode. Alright, let's do this. Um, before I begin, though, for those who are out of the loop, I decided to change my format. You know, I'm not, no longer picking a director and doing all their movies. I'm just gonna just pick one movie, go to, you know, break it down, find, uh, find little things I've saw and interesting, find some meaning in it. And uh, before I begin with my breakdown of uh, Batch of the Future... Uh, there's going to be a lot of spoilers, a lot of them, so highly recommend you watch the movie before I actually tell you what it means, so, alright, that out of the way, let us begin. Okay, so Back to the Future is seen by many today as a dated work of art. What I mean by that, by, uh, that word is that it's very much representative of the time here it was made in. And an example being the fact that it uh, compares what used to be the modern lifestyle of a teenager in the mid-80s to the lifestyle of a teenager in the mid-50s. If it was remade today, it would have mostly been about a teenager from the 2020s traveling back to the 90s instead. Uh, Now, the fact that this movie isn't timeless is not a flaw made by the artist. Not all movies or just works of art in general need to be timeless classics. And making anything artistic that transcends the concept of time is a very astonishing feat and near impossible. I I certainly find it poetic that a movie that is centered around the past is in this timeless piece of cinema that holds up to this day. However, despite, uh, despite having some of its elements being dated, there are plenty of things in this film that hold up to this day. Uh, one example of the special effects. Like, they look still, they still look excellent. I personally think this is due to the effects being uh, practical and the uh, minimal use of computer-generated items, or CGI, uh, due to the technical limitations, actually aided in the effects in this movie because it doesn't look overproduced or anything like that. And the message is also uh, also aged pretty well still, and still is very relevant now in uh, the year 2022. So let's talk about it, shall we? Okay, so the movie begins with an opening credit scene. Remember when movies used to have those? Anyway, we get some shots of clocks, which of course there is, since it is a movie about time travel after all. And one of the clocks shows a man handing off the hands of it, which foreshadows this film's climax on Hale Valley's clock tower. After we're done checking out Dark Brown's magnificent clock collection, we see some newspapers with one headline reading, Dark Brown Mansion Destroyed, and Brown Mansion sold to developers. Now, Doc, being the crazy inventor he is, could have blown up his mansion during a freak accident in his lab, or he could have burned it down as an insurance fraud scheme in order to fund the creation of his time machine. Criminal activity is uncommon with Doc, since much later in the movie, in a deleted scene, we see him hand money over to a police officer to bribe him out of having him inspect a weather permit so he can use his time machine to get Marty back to the future. Hey, I just said the name of the title. And even when the scene is gone, we still get to see him pull out his wallet when the cop asks for his permit. So it's safe to infer this is still the case. Doc also worked with terrorists and stole plutonium from them so he could fund uh, power his prized invention, so insurance fraud seems to be the least of the crimes he has committed. After that, we see photos of scientists that Doc admires, and those are Thomas Edison, Benjamin Franklin, and Albert Einstein. 
Thomas Edison is the guy who invented the light bulb, for those who don't know. Uh, ben, Fr ben Frank is the American founding father. It is known for putting a key on his kite and letting lightning strike it to see what would happen, thus pioneering like, modern concepts as electricity. Oddly enough, during the climax of the film, Doc has a cable set up attached to the, the clock tower, while the DeLorean has a giant hook on it. So when the DeLorean drives onto the cable, the hook strikes the cable as the lightning strikes the tower. Lightning travels under the cable, hook touches the cable, bam, Marty travels back to the future. I just said the name of the title, didn't I? <laughs> uh, so, you know, this can't, so having been frank there, it just can't be a coincidence. Like, it must have been planned by someone. Someone, right? And uh, finally, the last of uh, Doc's list, we got Alan Einstein, who Doc must admire the most since he wears his hair like him has, and named his pet dog and test animal after him. Uh, we then see a television that is playing the news, and it's mostly about stuff we previously mentioned, terrorists, plutonium, yada yada. We then see how Doc meets him in his dog breakfast, which is not really important, but fun fact, in order to get the dog food to come out of the can as Robert Zemeckis wanted it to, they had to heat up the food inside in order for it to plop out into the dog bowl as intended. We are then introduced to our protagonist, Martin McFly. He seems to be good friends of Doc, since he knows where Doc keeps his key to his house, and Watson uninvited and plays with this giant amplifier as if he owns it and destroys it. He probably belted of Doc, but there isn't any evidence of this, just speculation. This is also where we see uh, Doc is hiding his plutonium, and Marty gets a phone call from the man himself, who's excited about a successful experiment, and asks him to aid with another one at Twins Pine Mall. Marty then discovers that he is late for school and dashes on a skateboard. Being late seems to be common with the McFly family, or at least with the men. George has seen being late for school back in 1955, and even oversleeps. But that probably wasn't his fault, but we'll get to that later. Marty's brother is also seen being late for the bus that takes him to his job, which is probably Mickey D's based on how he's dressed. Lorraine is also late as well back in 1955, but one of her friends seems to be very assertive that they arrive on time, so it's safe to infer that tardiness is unusual for her. Also, when Marty arrives at school with his girlfriend Jennifer, and he and is confronted by his authoritative principal named Strickland, and I see what you did there, Bob, he calls Marty a slacker, and refers to his dad George as a slacker as well, but he doesn't call his mother one. So my theory of Lorraine being the one on time does seem to be plausible. Strickland also gives Marty heck for being with Doc Brown and tells him that he's insane and he shouldn't spend his time with him. This gives us a nice clue about how Marty first met Doc, since Marty's a teenager after all. So when he con he's constantly hearing stories about this mad scientist who burned his mansion down and has all these oddball inventions, it probably arose his curiosity and decided to go see where he lived. And uh, when he knocked on his door, Dark Brown opened up, pulled him in, used him as a test subject, and the rest is history. Heck, even when Marty has to see Dog from 1955, it is exactly that, so I'm probably correct on that as well. After that, uh, we see Marty with his band of the Pinheads, and they're in the gymnasium playing at the Battle of the Bands. And uh, when it's their turn, they all grow up to play on, on stage and play some hard rock music to impress the judges. But the judges are boomers and think that it's too loud, and the penheads are knocked out of the competition. 
Also, one of the judges is Huey Lewis, who wrote the song that the Pinheads are playing. So that's a nice little gag. And the song, by the way, it's called The Power of Love. And it actually became a big hit at, uh, once this movie was released. Also, we, uh, we see how Jennifer reacts to Martina's band, and she seems to be really into it. And their appreciation for rock and roll is most likely how they bonded and fell in love. She also is very supportive of Marty's efforts to break into the mainstream and encourages him to send in his band's demo tape to various record companies. Ah, the days before SoundCloud, am I right? But uh, poor Marty is still glum due to his failure and is worried about rejection. And this is where we hear the message that everyone takes away from this movie, basically, and that is, if you put your mind to it, you can accomplish anything. However, there's another message we start uh, seeing here as well. It's a little bit more subtle. And that's uh, when after Marty talks about going camping with Jennifer, they're interrupted by an elderly woman who is handing out flyers and is asking for donations to help preserve the city's clock tower since it's a historical monument. So Marty takes a flyer, flyer and literally pays tribute to the past by donating a quarter to the elderly woman's efforts. This ends up saving him later on in the movie when he uses that flyer as a way to set to find the exact time and date the clock tower was struck by lightning so that he and Doc can power up DeLorean to go back to the future. I just said the name of the title again. Marty then goes home and sees that his family car has been totaled. He goes inside and finds that the culprit is this film's main antagonist, known as Biff Tannen. And Biff's an extremely unlikable character. He marches in George's house and blames him for the crash by saying the windshield has blind spots on him. And tells him that he has to pay for his laundry from the beer spilling during the collision. And he has the nerve to coerce poor George into foraging his paperwork for his job. Biff then proceeds to waltz around like he owns the George's place and takes his beer without his permission. Tots smack to his son right in his face. And the worst crime of all, takes his candy without asking. Which is a very serious offense, I tell ya. And uh, from, my, from what I said, from what I said, you can basically tell that Biff is a butthead. Hey, his words, not mine. And George McFly is what us kids call today a simp. He never sits up for himself and lets everyone tread on him. But don't worry, anyone who has seen this film knows that George will go from a white flag to a Gadsden flag at the end of the movie. We then cut to the McFly family having supper, and George is eating peanut brittle. And the reason for this was that there was a deleted scene where after George gets verbally beaten by Biff, Marty tells him next time just to say no, and a Girl Scout arrives selling peanut brittle, and George can't bring himself to say no to her. It was a nice little joke on its own, but in the context of the scene, it was just too on the nose and unnecessary. George also mentions Mar to Marty not to feel bad about not being able to play at the dance, and keep note of this bit of dialogue since it'll be important later. At the dinner table, we see Lorraine pouring herself a glass of vodka and brings out a cake meant for her brother Joey, a.k.a. Uncle Jailbird Joey, who was imprisoned for unknown crimes and was unable to make parole. Now, when Marty travels to 1955 and sees his Uncle Joey as a baby, his grandmother says that he loves his playpen and cries whenever she takes him out of it, so she keeps him inside. With this information, it's safe to infer that Joey is purposely going to jail to recreate childhood happiness being in his playpen, which is very Freudian if you ask me. This is when we see another important theme on display here, and that is how parents behave in the past have an effect on their, the future of their children. 
And in this scene, we also learn about Lorraine's problems and that her problems that she's very similar to her mother. She's very overprotective of her children and scolds Marty for having a love life and rants about how she was a Puritan and never, never like went around chasing boys, which we know is a lie. And she also has a bad drinking problem, which has affected her weight and aging. And judging from how she has to steal alcohol, how she stole used to steal alcohol from her mother to drink it, to drink it, it's pro she it's safe to assume that her grandmother also had that same drinking problem too, and it passed down onto her. We also kind of get a bigger picture of George's issues. While the previous one showed us that he was a bit of a simp, he's not just any simp, but he's a simp who got married to Lorraine because of dumb luck and that she felt sorry for him. And it's uh, and it's gonna have a serious effect on Marty since you know he's a young man trying to grow up, grow up as an adult, and it can be very tricky when your dad's just kind of a horrible role model. I'd much rather watch Jackie Leash Leeson instead of chatting with your wife and kids, and you got to rely on your mother for aid, but she's just very overprotecting, and she shows you from healthy life experiences, and mainly because she's missing out from the much-needed male attention from George, so he's kind of a man, he's too busy, absorbed in his own stuff, so she kind of tries to shield shield Marty so that she can get the male attention, attention you know, um, instead, so... It, so you know it's when you, know, when you you know when you kind of watch this dinner scene, what makes it so good is that when you first see it, you think, oh, it's just silly and goofy, you know, laughing it up, you know, I don't, uh, laughing it up. But then when you just kind of sit down and think about it, it's just really sad, <laughs> sad and depressing about how seeing this family just fall. It's just clearly falling apart. <laughs> oh my goodness. Alright, so after that, Marty gets a phone call from Doc, who tells him to meet up at Twins Pine Mall to conduct his experiment. Marty skateboards there and finds Einstein, Doc, and the DeLorean. And the interesting thing about the DeLorean, uh, when, uh, when the movie was released, the guy who actually made the car sent a letter thanking them and how it boosted the popularity of the car. Because when the DeLoreans came out, they were very unsuccessful, since they were pretty pretty uh poorly made and and the doors were just horrible and because when you park your car you try to get out but the doors go up instead of sideways which can uh probably cause say, a lot of scratches and dents so um doc, so when marty sees the time machine doc shows it off and Shows it off and tests it out by putting Einstein in the in, inside the car and controls the vehicle with a Bluetooth remote, and sends uh, the Einstein five minutes ahead into the future. And when our test audiences first saw this scene, they were actually very scared because they didn't know what happened to Einstein. They thought that he, they, the dog could have died. So after Einstein comes back safe and sound, uh, we learn more about the basics of the DeLorean. Such as, you know, it's powered by the flex capacitor and there's a keypad of all the years and years you can type in. And Doc kind of shows it off by punching in some dates such as Independence Day and the birth of Jesus Christ. Okay, so the, the date he punches in for Independence Day is perfectly correct, perfectly fine. But Doc then, for the birth of Jesus Christ, Doc types in this extremely strange date. Which is December twenty fifth zero at ED, which is so inaccurate. Like 
Doc really needs to brush up on his history because everyone knows Jesus wasn't born on that date. Well, at least I think everyone knows, I hope. It is roughly estimated that he was born around 6 to 4 BC because that's where King Herod King Herod died around in between then. And as we know, for people who read the Bible, King Herod was the guy who uh, who tried to kill Jesus and sent the wise men after him. So yeah. Um, I was going to have a little joke here about a Christmas, like a Christmas joke, but this episode turned out to be, the making of this episode turned out to be longer and went past the holiday season. So uh, yeah, this Christmas joke is is lost now because I've been too lazy to finish this episode. So after Doc types in this cringe-inducing inaccurate date of Jesus' birth, which is a blatant ignorance of history and the Gospels, which is probably because he's a scientist and not a theist, <laughs> he then punches in a red-letter date in history. Okay, Doc. I, I see what did there. And uh, that date is November 5th, 1955. And a uh, funny thing, the display that shows you what time you're traveling to is also red. So it's both literally and figuratively a red-letter date in history. Doc then explains how he came up with the idea of time travel, and it was when he was trying to hang up a photo in his bathroom and his toilet seat was wet, causing him to slip and fall, and when he hit his head, he saw the image of the flux capacitor, which he would later spend the rest of his life trying to invent. And this really makes me question the sanity of this man. And Mario doesn't seem to notice. And he barely relaxed, reacts to how Doc mentions about how he obtained the plutonium in the first place. Like if some scientist I was hanging around with just told me that he invented the idea of time travel from bonking, from bonking his head. And said that he stole some expensive equipment from terrorists. I'm just going to be taken off as soon as possible. Like this makes me think that Doc's, Doc's just like... If just like taking off potentially dangerous people might just be daily routine for him and Marty. Speaking of dangerous people, the terrorists arrive, and well, they don't really behave like terrorists. They don't run around and scream and blow themselves up. They actually instead roll up like a bunch of gangsters and commit a drive-by shooting on Doc Brown, killing him. And then the gangsters, uh, I mean the terrorists, then aim their AK-47 at Marty. And the most strange thing happens... The AK-47, which is known to be one of the most reliable guns in history of mankind, it jams. The van there in also has a problem starting it as well, giving Marty just the right amount of time to hop in the DeLorean and speed away. Which makes, really makes me think that Marty has some sort of plot armor hidden under his radiation suit. A car chase that the Fast and Furious movies wish they could make ensues, and the terrorists, tired of using the most useless AK ever, switch to an RPG. Which also makes me scratch my head since they could have just easily used that the first time instead of the only AK on Earth that has a reliability problem. Luckily, Marty time travels just in the nick of time and arrives in 1955. Marty, now 1955, then crashes into a barn. And he is then greeted by its owner, Old Man Peabody, and his family, who think he's an alien because of his radiation suit looking very similar to an alien on the cover of a science fiction comic that, that their son owns. And fun fact, if you read the script for the movie, you can find that Peabody's son is named Sherman. And if you put them together, you get Peabody and Sherman, which is a reference to a time-traveling cartoon duo that played in between Rocky and Bullwinkle cartoons. Also, the 
the name of the comic is Spaceman from Pluto. And that was actually going to be the name of the movie at some point because the producer thought it would be a more marketable title instead of Back to the Future. Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale were horrified at this idea and they contacted Steven Spielberg for help and he ge- and he decided to play it off as a joke. And, they, and it ended up working and the title of Back to the Future remained. And thank goodness it did because we want to watch Spaceman from Pluto. So uh, we find that Old Man Peabody is a very hospital man and attempts to give Marty a gift known as a double barrel surprise. Marley rudely declines Peabody's amazing gift, then escapes in his DeLorean and knocks down one of his pine trees. Oh man, this is... Come on, come on. You rejected his gift, and then you destroy his property. You know what? I, I think we need, we need a TV show needs to be made, because Old Man Peabody is the this movie's true protagonist, not Marty, okay? Like, we need a TV show... Similar to Cobra Kai, but instead it's Old Man Peabody being jo- is Johnny Lawrence and and Marty McFly is LaRusso. Come on, guys, let's let's make it happen. Hey, Amazon Prime, you want to compete with Netflix? Spam new TV show idea. So anyway, um, the DeLorean then runs out of gas, so Marty hides it and walks into Hell Valley, and he gets to experience what it's like back in 1955. So this is where we see a Western starring Ronald Reagan, who would later become the President of the United States during 1985. We also see the music of the era, records such as The Valley of Davy Crockett and Unforgettable by by Nat King Cole. We also see a child hopping on spring shoes, and if that kid was around in 1985, he would be wearing inflatable basketball shoes instead. Hold on, were those around in 1985? One sec, gotta look something up. Okay, uh, sorry guys, it wasn't in 1985, they were around 1988. Uh, sorry, I'm a, I'm a fool. My apologies to all those who uh, who uh, wore inflatable basketball shoes. <laughs> I, I just don't know my stuff. Anyway, um, anyway, back to the back to the plot. Uh, so we hear we also see a political advertisement for Hill Valley's uh, mayor at the time as well, Mayor Red Thomas, who champions better education, civic improvement. Low taxes and more jobs, which is the exact same platform as Mayor Goldie Wilson back in, well, not back, but you get what I mean, back in, in 1985. So Marty then goes into a diner and uses the phone book inside to find Doc's number and address. He tries calling him, but he doesn't answer, most likely because Doc is not unconscious on his bathroom floor. Marty then tries to order a Pepsi-free, which was a caffeine-free type of Pepsi around that in 1985 you can actually still get those but it's not since it's 1955 he the poor the poor uh waiter thinks it's he was ordering a free pepsi so he doesn't get any so then biff and his posse arrive into the diner and then pick on the kid who's sitting next to marty and that is george mcfly and biff tortures george in a similar fashion from the in the earlier scene but the only big difference is that he's coercing him into doing his homework for school instead of paperwork for his job. And this very much ties in with the movie's theme of learning for your past to benefit from your future. As Goldie Wilson 
uh, later says in the scene, you got to stand up for yourself or else those boys are going to be picking on you in your entire life. And one of Biff's goons, who is known as Skinhead in the script, wants Marty's jacket, which starts a running gag. That is, uh, jacket is a, let's, is a, people mistaking his jacket for a life for a for a life preserver. And the thing with Skinhead is actually he was going to be the Biff in the movie, but he ended up getting recast as uh, Thomas F. Wilson. When Marty got casted by Eric Stoltz, who was a very tall actor, and, the, and Thomas F. Wilson was tall enough, so will be more believable for a tall guy like him to be, be able to pick on Eric Stoltz. And, uh, they, and Eric Stoltz ended up uh, leaving the movie because he didn't understand the movie was a comedy, and he played it very seriously, which ended up ruining the humor. So that's when Eric Stoltz ended up getting fired and they got Michael J. Fox to be the Marty we all know and love. So after Biff and his cronies leave, George finishes up his hot cereal and takes off and Marty follows him. Marty then discovers that George is on top of a tree with a pair of binoculars, peering up towards a woman's window watching their change. And Marty realizes in horror that not only is his father a simp, he's a peeping Tom as well. And then the branch George is on top of then it snaps. And he falls in front of a car. Seeing that his dad's life is in danger, Marty instinctively saves him, and he gets hit with the car instead. Marty wakes up and is shocked by his mother's useful appearance, and that his pants are gone. Turns out she has placed them on her hope chest, which is something unmarried women used to own, and to store special items to anticipate the day they got married, which is already a bad sign. She also says she's never seen purple underwear before, and not just underwear in general, which is oh so suspicious. This is most likely one of the scenes that made Disney help reject help make the film when uh, Bob Gale and Robert Zemeckis sent this movie script to them. Here we start to see that Lorraine is taking a liking to Marty, which is the closest to the meaning of the word crass the humor gets. That doesn't take it too far, which is excellent, and mostly why most studios, except for Disney, thought the humor was too clean for them and wouldn't make as much money. They would be proven wrong much later when this film ended up reaching number one at the box office. Now Marty heads downstairs and gets to see his grandparents and uncles. And as he gets directions to Doc's house and learns the former name of John F. Kennedy Drive. And his grandpa understandably doesn't know who he is yet. JFK was a senator in 1955, but he wasn't a household name up until that point. And it's very understandable for Americans being not knowing their senators or senators or congressmen or, or just or just topics in general am i right guys marty then heads over to dart's place and he's testing out a mind reading device which turns out to be a failure however it wasn't a total one since marty did travel a great distance to get to dart's house the saturday evening post is the name of the newspaper marty found out of the trash the donations are from when Marty donated his quarter to save a locked tower. And a bit about the Coast Guard is from how everyone thinks that Marty's, Marty is wearing a life jacket. After experimenting with that device, Marty try, then tries to convince Doc that he is from the future. So Doc asks who, who was the U.S. president in 1985, and Marty replies with Ronald Reagan, which causes Doc to exclaim, The actor! And uh, when Reagan, Reagan, Ronald Reagan himself watched the movie, he thought it was so funny. He asked the guy working the projector to rewind the scene so he could watch it again. Also, when Doc jokingly says that Jane Wyman is the first lady, it actually made Ronald Reagan feel very awkward since 
she was his first divorcee and he was watching the movie with Nancy, his second wife and actual first lady. Marty finally manages to convince the doc that he is legitimate by telling him how he got the bump on his head and how he invented the flux capacitor. And then Marty takes Doc to see the DeLorean and shows the footage of them testing out the time machine, which freaks Doc out since 1.21 gigawatts is a crazy amount of power and is hard to generate in 1955. Doc then grabs a photo of Thomas Edison in dismay and places them on his photos of other great scientists. And there was one of them that was not seen in the opening in the opening uh, credits. Can you guess who it is? It is Isaac Newton. For those who don't know... Isaac Newton came out with the laws of motion when an apple hit him on the head, similar to how Doc came out with time travel when he slipped and bumped his head. So I figure over time, Doc's appreciation for Newton mellowed out over the years, which made sense in science appreciation for Newton. Also dwindled out when Einstein's theory of relativity was introduced, making most of his work obsolete. Doc and Marty then come up with a plan to generate the 1.21 gigawatts to power the time machine, and in the original script, they're actually going to go to a nuclear test site and use a nuclear bomb explosion to power the DeLorean, but uh, obviously, due to technical limitations and budget restraints, it got switched to the Hale Valley Clock Tower. Afterwards, Doc then asks Marty if he's seen if he has been in any contact with anyone, which can possibly ruin the space-time continuum. And Marty then informs Doc about the incident with his father, which then adds new complications and an oddly complicated situation. Marty and Doc then arrive at the high school and witness George McFly getting pranked with a kick-me sign of all things, which causes Doc to contemplate the greatest scientific question in the universe, which is how did a guy like this get a girl in the first place? Marty then tries to have George just talk to Lorraine, but she's too busy trying to pick up Marty to notice him. This leaves Marty and Doc to try a better idea, and that is to get them together on a date to the same dance where they kissed and fell in love. Marty meets up with his dad who's writing a science fiction novel, and Marty is very impressed by his father's creativity. And I think this also adds to why Marty's such good friends with Doc, since he enjoys the creative process, even if he doesn't fully understand the, the, the subject the other person is into. Which makes sense as Marty is a musician, and who knows, maybe Marty is hanging out with Doc because he wants to write some good songs who knows i i even i would even argue that uh george mcfly is very similar to doc brown in a lot of ways for example both george and doc are eccentric men who have a passion for science well for george it's fictional and for doc it's real science or at least real within the movie's universe and they uh both adopt a philosophy into their lives which is if you can put your mind to it you can accomplish anything Marty keeps trying to get George to ask Lorraine out, but eventually ends up seeing Biff harassing her nearby, and he comes to her defense. A fight almost breaks out, but it's stopped by Principal Strickland. And you can tell that this school was uh, was in, the in 1955, since no one was suspended, and Strickland seems to be more concerned of a student throwing a paper airplane than two students about to duke it out in the cafeteria. Later that day, George gets fed up with Marty following him around and yells at him that he would rather stay home and watch TV than go out to the dance, and no one on earth can convince him otherwise. This gives Marty the idea to put on his radiation suit and sneak into George's house and tell him that he's an extraterrestrial named Darth Vader from Planet Vulcan, and if he doesn't go out to the dance, he'll melt his brain. You may notice that Marty has a hairdryer attached to his belt, and then it's gone. This mistake was the result of the scene and cut down due to it going on for a, for a long time, since it would have actually shown Marty using the hairdryer as a death ray gun, 
and he would have uh, put a rag of chloroform over George's mouth to put him to sleep, which is why he ends up oversleeping later later on. However, Robert Zemeckis thought it would be uh, better if they just had a freaked out George summarize what happened to him to Marty and McFly instead. My favorite joke in this part of the film is when two passerbys look visibly concerned for George McFly's mental well-being as he describes what happened to him. It is hard to notice them, but once you find them, you can't miss them. This is when George finally musters up the courage to ask Lorraine out to the dance. He walks into the diner she's in with the exaggerated swagger of a teenage baby boomer. He orders chocolate milk like an absolute chat, and then, with a belly full of liquid courage, is about to ask Lorraine out. And that is when Biff and his pals arrive and ask him to donate to charity, and that charity is him. Artie, seeing that his dad is in danger, instinctively fights off Biff in such an insane fashion, he invents the skateboard while doing so, and Biff and his pals end up crashing into a into a truckload full of manure. This, of course, makes Lorraine's infatuation for Marty even stronger, seeing how much of an alpha male he is compared to a simp like George. In fact, her passion for Marty is so out of control, she does the unthinkable, and she is the one who ends up asking out him to the dance, instead of the other way around. This is when Marty forms a plan with George, and that he's going to get into an argument with Lorraine, and George will show up and punch Marty, causing Lorraine to dance with him instead, thus securing his timeline. This, this scene is very important here, since Marty's teaching George how to be a man, and that is someone who sits up for himself and others in time of trouble. I strongly approve of this message, especially now if the question of what it means to be a man is so polarized these days, and how everyone's arguing, what, like arguing over what is and what isn't acceptable as behavior or not. And you know, we have a work of art that just cuts through all the garbage and gets to the point. Point, which I really, really enjoy. Joy. Also, uh, this scene was supposed to be longer, but due to Crispin Glover moving off camera a lot during filming, they actually had to cut some of it out. And what was going to happen was that George uh, George was going to practice fake punching Marty, but uh, it ended up looking not that great. It looked so uh, fake as well. Afterwards, Marty tries to warn Doc about his death, but Doc refuses. Marty then writes a letter warning him about his murder and hides it in his jacket. Marty then goes to the dance of Lorraine, and Marty thinking that she was the good girl in high school, decides to ask if they could park her for a while, thinking it'll set her off. However, she accepts this course of action, thus ruining his plan. And Lorraine ends up starting to drink a sip of liquor, and that's when Marty just tries to be a father to Lorraine as well, since he knows that she would later become an alcoholic later in life, and he tries to get her to quit. However, due to peer pressure, he ends up taking a sip, and it is an outtake on my copy of the DVD, where the prop guy pranks Michael J. Fox by putting real alcohol in the bottle, causing him to spit it out in disgust. And uh, when the band decides to take a break, George realizes that he is late to, the, to show up at the car door. He then rushes to the parking lot, and there is a deleted scene where a redhead, the redheaded guy who tries to get Lorraine to dance with him later in the movie locks him up in a phone booth, while George tries to find the correct time by asking the operator. Lorraine then gives Marty a kiss, and she instantly doesn't like it since it felt like she just kissed her brother. Marty feels relieved, but then a drunken Biff and his goons show up. Biff has his buddies beat up Marty while he harasses Lorraine. Biff's goons then stuff Marty into a trunk of the band's car, and one of them gets out angry because, well, of course, they were touching his car. One of the goons refers to him as a spook, and that's not a, he's not calling him a CIA agent. He's uh, calling him a really bad racial slur. Oof. And that ends up sending off the rest of the band, who stop smoking their blunts and get out of the car to start the dominance over them. 
and the fact that they were enjoying the taste of the devil's lettuce puts fear into one of the goons. And this might seem silly to us now, but in those days, weed was seen as a hardcore drug. If you want to get a good perspective of what people thought of weed in the olden days, I recommend watching the 1936 film Reefer Madness. The band then tries to get Marty out of the trunk since the keys were inside, and George runs to the car only to find Biff. He, he tries to punch him, but Biff grabs his wrist and bends his arm and slowly try, begins to break it. But then George uses his free arm to swing a punch at him and takes Biff out in a single punch. The guitar player for the band then uses a knife to get Marty out, but cuts his hand while doing so, and Marty runs to see George successfully taking out the trash and getting the girl all on his own. However, Marty's job's not over yet, since the guitar player's hand got cut, and Marty gets to replace him as the guitar player. Now, remember how Marty was disappointed that he and, his, and the Penheads didn't get to play at this high school dance? Well, he finally gets to do so, and he ends up saving himself and his siblings' lives lives at the same time and events rock and roll so that is quite the performance once Marty finishes securing his existence and invented a genre of music he dashes to the clock tower and tells doc about his letter but doc rips it up worried that he would ruin the space time continuum knowing how he would die doc then quickly sets up the wire for marty and, dr and he drives up up to it and hits it with his hook and the lightning strikes it and it successfully sends him back to the future I just said the name of the title yet again. However, Marty ends up sending himself 10 minutes before he left just so he can save Doc, and he goes to what is now called Lone Pine Mall and sees Doc getting shot and in, in, in himself travel back to 1955. Marty, distraught thinking that he failed to save his friend, finds out that he wasn't the only one wearing plot armor to protect himself from the terrorists. Marty then goes back home and goes to sleep, and he finds that everyone has changed, and his family's now rich, and that George is an author. His mother is an abuser, his brother works at a fancy office job, and he isn't hiding his relationship with Jennifer from his mother. Biff also washes cars for George McFly and is a total wimp now. Chris and Glover actually got into a huge conflict with writer Bob Garrell over this ending, since Glover believed that, it, that the ending was telling the audience that if you have wealth, it automatically makes you a better person. And it is actually one of the many factors that tarnished his friendship with Gail and Zemeckis and one of the reasons he didn't come back to do Batch of the Future Part 2. However, I think Glover is wrong here, since the wealth the McFly family acquires doesn't make them better people. Their wealth came to them as a result of becoming better people over the course of the story. Uh, Marty then gets to meet up with Jennifer to go on their camping trip, but then we get the iconic ending, where Doc shows up out of nowhere and says the brilliant line, where we're going, we don't need roads. It brings them to the future to help fix their kids. Despite the ending being a bit of a cliffhanger, Bob Gear never thought that a sequel would ever be made to this movie, and he wrote it in as a joke. Even when he started writing the sequel, it didn't occur to him until much later to use the ending of the first one to start off the second one. He was originally going to have Doc and Marty go back to the 60s and try to maintain his parents' relationship in that time period. But thankfully, he didn't do that and decided to scrap it for what would later become both Batch of the Future sequels. I think it would be perfect to end this episode on that note. I hope you enjoyed the show, everyone. And I hope you have a good rest of your day or night or evening or whatever your time you're listening to this. All right, so see you next time on The Zachariah Show. Goodbye.